This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time to talk politics. And the education minister here in Ontario has weighed in on the continuing disruptive controversy at Oakville Trafalgar High School, where a teacher comes to work wearing huge prosthetic breasts with the nipples protruding through his shirt. Her their shirt, sorry. There have been death threats, bomb threats, protests from parents who don't think this is appropriate, and students have been warned not to take pictures of this person. Yet the Halton School Board has not stepped in. Now, Stephen Lecce, the education minister, has rebuked the school board, saying it has failed to uphold educators' professional standards and look after student safety. And in Ottawa, another ethics violation in the Trudeau cabinet, this time small business minister marrying. Uh, are we just inured to this or will there be any fallout because there's no consequence for her as far as I can see? The numbers to call 416 360 0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. And now I'd like to welcome former Ontario NDP leader Howard Hampton, former Ontario Liberal MPP Gerard Kennedy, and we are waiting for our third Panelists, hello and welcome, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, uh, so let us get to this. Uh, Stephen Lecce, in a rare formal rebuke of the Halton School Board, uh, is that good on the Ford, Ford government? Is it bad on the Ford government? Let's begin with Gerard. Well, I'm sorry it's looked at that way in the sense of I don't think it should be politics. There's some uh, conflicting standards going on here. One is human rights, uh, gender expression and gender uh, identity are protected under the Ontario Human Rights Code. Uh, The board is an employer uh, and uh, has to look at it in that light. And I don't know, uh, you know, what's actually going on in that classroom. The second part is the obligations of that teacher and every teacher to meet uh, both teaching standards and codes of ethics under the Ontario College of Teachers. So, you know, as I think, um, you know, uh, is anytime someone is a minister, if you're throwing a lightning bolt from your office on the 22nd floor, uh, you'd like to believe that minister has done everything else. They've got field staff, they've got people to talk to at the board. There is problem solving involved when you have those kind of issues at play. And I hope that people out there, and I know it's hard for people, especially because that only got in the human rights thing around 2012, that, you know, to understand that there is actually, uh, you know, what not a caricature, but rather a, a real uh, workplace uh, issue here. And obviously it should be resolved in favor of a person's rights and reconciled with, with uh, the teaching environment and the learning environment. I don't know what those efforts look like, and I don't know that the minister's comments contribute to that because he's basically giving everyone heck, and I think he has other tools that um, better reflect the situation, but he may have used those. I can't sit in in judgment from here either. I mean, Howard Hampton, uh, the board has said that this is a human rights issue. Do you agree that it's a human rights issue, or is it an issue of uh, professional standards? professional uh, dress, professional presentation? It's both, and that's why this is complicated. And that's why the Minister of Education, you know, offering a, a uh, from a, a mile-on-high opinion isn't helpful. Uh, the teacher, in this case, does have some legal rights. 
and students uh, and parents have some legal rights. And there are uh, certainly codes of conduct uh, in the classroom. Um, I, I think the person who's offered up the, the most salient uh, information here is a director of education who said, look, we have consulted with some of the best legal minds in the province, people who deal with equity issues and people who deal with uh, these kinds of, of conflict. You could almost call it a conflict of law issue. Uh, people who, who deal with this. And uh, I think the advice they're probably getting is this is a complicated situation. Don't try to do anything rash or uh, anything that uh, simply seeks uh, public support. Uh, sort through the issues. I suspect that's the advice the board is getting, and it's probably good advice. Um, what the what the uh, minister has done uh, may win him, a, you know, a couple of uh, political points with some people, but it's not going to lead to a solution. Um, even even the you know. Uh, uh, even the uh, uh, teachers, uh, 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 the sorry. board, the college. No, not, no, no. The college has stepped in and said, "Look, you know, there, there are tools here. There are the board has some authority, uh, but I suspect the legal advice the board is getting is tread carefully. Uh, you know, here's here's our advice on how you should resolve this. Don't try to resolve it on the front pages of the newspapers." Well, uh, I think it's a bit late for that. Uh, I think uh, it's it's already on the front pages of newspapers and all over the Internet, and I don't think there's much to do to stop that. I'd like to bring in John McEtitian, conservative activist, political consultant, and president of the Bradgate Research Group. John, is this uh, uh, what uh, I guess the new leader of the Conservative Party would call woke politics? Uh, it is the height of woke politics. It, uh, um, it's the picture, uh, it's a poster, uh, poster boy perfect example of what's wrong. And it shows the depth of it. So it's not only a bad decision. What it shows is good people, school board members, elected officials, um, people who call themselves educators in the professional sense, that are all so consumed with making sure they make the, quote, right, unquote, decision, that they're afraid to have any common sense whatsoever and do what they should do, which is to say, uh, common sense, this is unacceptable. Uh, So now we have a minister stepping in to show common sense, I can't, uh, you know, I, I haven't talked to Stephen about this, but I got to believe that the degree of frustration within the government for uh, allowing this to continue, this is not something that happened last Tuesday. This is something that's been dragging on for months and months. And as we've now heard, the local board has the tools and they haven't taken any action. And uh, people may have an opinion on whether or not there's a human rights uh, angle to this or not by the employee. But the reality is, you know, every day people have different interpretations and beliefs. And what happens is we have a thing called the judicial process. We've got a human rights uh, board that, that gets many, many complaints every day. And most of them don't uh, end in the result of the complainant. And that's for a reason. People get it wrong. Uh, I'm wondering, I mean, I don't think trans people have an easy time. I think that we should do what we can to make their lives easier, not harder. But isn't part of normalizing this uh, having them abide by the same kind of rules? I mean, if a female teacher showed up like that, I don't think that would be allowed to continue. Am I totally off base here, Gerard? Well, you know, like here's the problem I'm having is that, yeah, it's new and it's easy to rail against it. And, you know, what, what, like what I am understanding is that people are making death threats and people are, and the minister's intervention was partly based on, well, the board should be protecting the students. The minister should be saying death threats around this are unacceptable. I think he did say that actually. And violence is unacceptable and, and measures that need to be taken because, that's the conflagration of this. This is one person 
someone somewhere, like in other words, I'm not willing to dismiss the school board in the situation. The first question would be, what is the impact on those students? And I, you know, it's not good. Well, again, I don't. That information is is I think got to be the touchstone here in terms of, you know, the trade offs are you know clear. I think under the act of, for the College of Teachers and so on, and the professional responsibility is there. But I really wonder if uh, we in this panel, if the minister, unless he's made those other steps I referenced earlier are making constructive contributions. Some of this stuff is getting kind of worked out, and I understand how sensational it all looks. And I understand, I guess John said, common sense. I think that that all of us have a visual kind of reaction. It looks like some kind of stunt rather than a real expression of someone's gender. But there must be something more going on than this. I think we all need to see it through to the other end and see if there's something that we learn from it. But I think the centerpiece of this has got to be the impact on the high school students that are there. And uh, that's the part that I think has to shine through in terms of the different trade-offs that have to happen here. I don't know why it has taken this long. Those things, I think, would be sorted. And I just don't know what wailing on the board in public as if they're from some other planet. These are board people elected by their local community trying in their best, weighing with details that we may not know. You know, and, and again, I'm not trying to avoid any of the things here, except that this is a tough one on judgment. There's one person's gender expression going on here, and we're, because of the way they've expressed it, we're all having an opinion. I don't know enough of the facts to say, but I would like to believe that kids' learning interests, the teaching environment in general, is going to be an overriding factor that everyone, regardless of their of their gender choice, or their, sorry, well, their gender, gender uh, expression, is going to be on board with. I, it, doesn't, it doesn't appear to be. I mean, kids... I, wanna, I just want to jump in one more time here. Uh, the legal advice that the board would have gotten would have been based on facts, a factual basis. Uh, no law firm is going to wade in and give their political opinion uh, that they're they're going to sit down and say, look, here's the facts as we understand them. Are these the facts as you understand them? And they're, and they're probably saying to the board, uh, yes, there's, there, there are some solutions here, uh, but you you need to work through this on the basis of the facts and on the basis of the law as we now know it, uh, and, and uh, uh, trying to handle it on the front pages. Or trying to, uh, you know, win over this side of the public or that side of the public doesn't find the resolution that you need to find here. Yes, this particular individual has some legal rights. Some people in our society may not may object to that, but they, they do have legal rights. Yes, the children have legal rights, and yes, the Board of Education has a legal obligation here. But this is the kind of difficult legal situation where you have to resolve it on the basis of the facts, and you have to put your own personal opinion, or in some cases you have to put public opinion aside, while you find that resolution. And I suspect the board, I don't think the board is, is uh, you know, often uh, uh, on another planet. I don't think they're uh, in Never Never Land. I suspect uh, they're, they're very serious about their jobs, as are the administrators at the school board. And, and uh, I, I suspect what they're trying to do is take the, the considered legal advice that they've gotten about how to resolve this, and they're trying to work at it. I, my only point is that uh, Mr. Lecky may have gotten himself some political points, but I doubt well, very I'm... much that what, what he's had to say will in any way lead to a good resolution of this. Well, we we don't know that, and definitely he's got political points. But again, uh, we know in many human rights cases, I mean, you the employer, uh, you know, might have consequences after the human rights tribunal weighs in. But the, I mean, you have adolescent kids. First of all, if this is a gender expression, Doing it in this way in front of adolescents like turns it into some kind of joke 
or it, I, I mean, I don't think it advances that because adolescents, I mean, they have their puberty going on and that's, they're not going to react in a mature way, right? They're going to react like adolescents. So, so that's number one. And again, I, you know, if it, if it was, uh, a female, you know, the, the, I think it would have been dealt with more swiftly. John, um, I mean, what do you say to uh, both Gerard and Howard believe that this is based on very sound legal advice? Yeah, I, I think that's the uh, it's exactly the woke perspective, right? That every viewpoint is valid and everything has to be balanced. And no, it doesn't. At the end of the day, the board should say, do they accept this behavior in classroom? If they don't, then they should send a letter that says, change your behavior or you're no longer going to be in a classroom. Then the employee absolutely has a right to either go to a legal challenge or to the human rights board for a ruling. And that would advance things and, and draw clarity to this. That's not what's been happening. What's been happening instead is humming and hawing and saying, what are the chances of us winning? What are the chances of us losing? Oh me, oh my, what are we going to do? And let's be clear, this happened, I think, uh, came to, to light in the year prior to the last municipal election with a board of elected uh, trustees who do what most politicians do, as both of uh, my fellow panelists would know far better than I, politicians are loath to be courageous when an election is coming. So what's fascinating is that they're exactly the same, you know, and, and to that, I should say, Notice that it wasn't like there was a slate of new candidates that ran on this issue in the last municipal either in that board. So we fundamentally have the same people that were there before. So the community, the parents didn't repudiate them. You have them coming back and they're uh, still wringing their hands with no action. And now what we have is a minister after months and months and months at the local level waiting for resolution or some kind of action saying this is just beyond the pale. It's time for common sense and it's time for appropriate action. Well, oh, okay, you know, John, I'm gonna... I, think, I think that's a little, you know, it, it is so easy to stand back from the, 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 the height of the minister or the detachment of this. There are real people in that classroom, students, and I'm going to believe that those students are being looked after in some way and maybe they're not as, you know, uh, negatively impacted is what's there, because that is an imperative. And if this has gone on this long, either we have the most reckless people going, they just got reelected by the community of Oakville, they're, they're in place. And again, I'm not, it's not a blank check at all. I'm just saying that these things would have had to be evaluated. Otherwise, the minister could have stepped in. That minister can take away decision-making from that board at any time if they think it's sufficiently egregious. The question here to me is, Who's willing to work these difficult things out? Gender expression is new to a lot of people, but it's legitimate. It's in the human rights code. And John, your recommendation is that let's go violate the code, or at least apparently do it, and then find out how much harm it causes. The board is the only courage I see here is them standing up to the obvious, which is, wow, look at that caricature looking thing there. And they're sort of looking into it further and standing by some set of principles. Now, we can argue with those principles, but I don't think we can say the board is taking the easy route here. I don't think that's possible. They've, and as you mentioned, they've been through an election, and I think it's us in this discussion that are sort of saying, well, we belong in that classroom because there's some salacious photographs. We should be second-guessing here. It offends us. It may not offend those kids. We don't know. It, may, it certainly offends some people. They're making violent threats. We should be talking about that, first of all. Those are, that's the actions of community members that we need to sort of limit here. And then, yes, maybe there should be a time limit. Maybe there should be parameters for this discussion. But, you know, the people who should be on this show are people from that board, because I really think we're diminishing the, the issue that's getting thrashed out here, which is how to treat people, gender identity and gender expression properly. And, and the caricature is getting in the way, I agree, but it's also some attitudes. I'm going to take, I, I, uh, hang on, I'm going to take a couple of calls of callers who've been waiting patiently. So we've got Marsha in Toronto. Hi, Marsha. Hi, how are you? Can you hear me? I can hear you. And you okay. are a former educator? 
Yes, I am. Go ahead. So, yeah, I don't know if this is necessarily a human rights issue. I think part, a big part of it is dressing appropriately as an educator, as a professional in the classroom, be uh, in front of impressionable teenagers. Yes, teenagers know a lot. They've seen a lot. But I think there's something wrong here when people are not using critical thinking. And I think critical thinking is missing here with this issue. Like, I as a teacher would never go into the classroom with my nipples are showing. And students would not come to the classroom with their nipples showing. I mean, it's black and white regardless of gender expression, what gender you claim to be. Uh, and yeah. you, you know, I'm not I, sure teenagers wouldn't come to school with with their initial nipples protruding, but but uh, that's a different discussion. Right. Yeah. Right. But you know what I'm saying. I do know what you're saying, and thank you for your call, Marcia. Okay. okay. We'll take one more from Ron in Guelph. Hi, Ron. Hi, lady. Thanks for taking my call. There's, uh, there's only a few minutes here. There's there's two issues actually at, on here. And the first important one is safety. Now, the first time this came about and I saw the first picture, my first impression is, wait a minute, that guy's beside a saw, all right? Now, this is industrial arts. We got yeah. drills. We've got, we've got saws. So this teacher shouldn't be allowed anywhere close to that equipment for safety reasons. Why? Because, that, because those um, enlarged breasts and their clothing could easily get caught up in one of the pieces of equipment. Okay. Uh, okay, yeah. Ron, thanks for that. Um, okay. Um, do we want a last word on this before we move on to uh, Mary Inga? Who was who was jumping in when I took the, the callers? Uh, I was. Go ahead. Uh, we don't know what measures the board has taken uh, to try to resolve this. And we don't actually know what measures the administration has taken and we don't know what legal advice they're getting and and uh my experience in, in dealing with these kinds of issues it's uh, very easy to be you know the sunday morning quarterback and tell people well you should have done this you should have done that you're not the one seized with the differing political uh, uh points of view you're not the one seized with the legal advice that you may be getting uh and, and that's where I, I hope everyone would take a deep breath and allow the administration and the board to work through this. Um, to say, you know, that uh, people on boards of education lack courage, I'm sorry, most people who run for the board of education, they do it because they care deeply about education. It's not a job that pays all kinds of money. It's not a job that gets you all kinds of uh, political kudos or uh, or uh, any kind of positive standing in the media. It's a job that takes hours and hours of meetings and work and issues. And I, I, I think these people are people of good faith, just as I think the administration are people of good faith. And I think the lawyers who are probably advising them are knowledgeable people and people of good faith. But they recognize that there is a clash of legal rights and a clash of, of rules here. And I suspect the administration has tried different uh, strategies to resolve this. Um, and uh, I think we just give them some time to do uh, and follow the advice that they're getting and to act in good faith, as I believe most people in these situations try to do, to act in good faith in the interest of the students and in the interest of education. Okay, well, I, I think uh, people, uh, we all have to agree to disagree on this one. Uh, let's move along, Mary Ang. Uh, another ethics violation in the Trudeau cabinet. Uh, is that just ho-hum, Gerard? Well, first of all, I have to recuse myself. Mary Ang worked with me for a number of years. So, you know, all I can say is is that whatever people hear from me will be colored by that. And, and I don't, you know, I don't think the whole story is there. She is an outstanding example of an ethical person in politics, and I understand that there's been a violation finding here, and I think other people can have at it. But I've seen the kind of way that she conducts herself, so I, I don't think that 
everything is out there in the public. But I want to declare my conflict of interest, which is that she worked for me when I was Minister of Education and also when I was a member of Parliament. So I, I don't think I can speak to this uh, fully objectively. Uh, and I'd like to hear the rest in terms of what else may come out in terms of how this is being dealt with. But right now, I, that's all I have to say. You know what, Gerard? Bravo to you for uh, not weighing in on this. Uh, I I wish we'd see more of that <laughs> generally uh, all around. So uh, thank you for for uh, letting us know about that, John McCutcheon. Uh, sadly, uh, it'll be easier for me, and that I don't know the lady. But what I know is that. Uh, Every person is innocent and clean until they get a conviction of one type or another. And she has now found to have had an ethics violation, which means she's no longer a completely ethical person. That's now been proven and adjudicated. Uh, the question that you put forward to us is that what happens now? And I'll sadly say again, I don't think anything. Because how can the most corrupt prime minister in recent memory be the one to hold anybody else accountable. When I say corrupt, I'm talking about multiple ethics violations, um, you know, and scandals. I mean, there used to be a thing called um, uh, accountability in government, that if you did something, you you, know, you stood up in Parliament, you apologized for your uh, mistake or misdemeanor. Uh, and back in the day, that was even if it was within your ministry, if it wasn't you or your political staff. And you would accept the responsibility for your ministry, and you would step down. And that's no longer the case, and it hasn't been for a long time. And, um, you know, more than one party is guilty of that. But certainly the current prime minister has the—I'm pretty sure he has the Canadian record for scandals and ethics violations. So I don't see how, if he's the leader of the country or the party, how he's ever going to hold anybody underneath him accountable. Howard, does this, uh, you know, I, I don't, even despite the uh, ethics violations of the prime minister, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'd go as far as to use the adjective corrupt for him. Uh, I, I'm just wondering, to me, I wondered, does this advance the narratives that the liberal government, there's one set of rules for elite liberals and another set for the rest of everyone else? Well, I, I think the person who's going to wear this is the prime minister. Um, and and uh, I think this, uh, this, this uh, is an added weight uh, for him personally uh, in, in terms of uh, going forward in, in the next election. Look, uh, you know, as somebody who's been there you know, and who's been in a cabinet job, let me tell you, uh, you're not always you, you you don't always see around the corners as to what could possibly lead to a conflict of interest a complaint uh, you have sometimes you have ministries with thousands of people and you're handling all kinds of complex issues and if you spend every minute of every day saying oh well you know could this be a conflict of interest could that be a conflict of interest you're not, believe me, you're not going to get uh, much time to make the really important decisions. So on the one hand, um, I know that it can be, it, it can be uh, out of the blue, you can get a complaint about a conflict of interest. In this case, that was examined, and there is a finding that there was a conflict of interest. I don't think that means that uh, this person is in any way corrupt, or even the, the cabinet minister is corrupt. It means some rules were broken. And the problem that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has is that on his watch, he himself has broken these rules, not once, not twice, but a few times. And other, Three, uh, other people in his government have broken the rules, and it's become almost a reputational thing for him. So I, I think that, you know, this just adds to the load that he has to carry into the next election campaign. And it's why I wonder if even Prime Minister Trudeau will be leading the Liberal Party into the next election campaign, because that load is becoming pretty heavy and it's becoming pretty well known. Yeah, 
And uh, uh, I wonder if it uh, plays into uh, the polyevra narrative uh, very conveniently. But anyway, uh, that's it. Uh, we're heading into Christmas. I'd like to go around the table. 20 seconds to everyone. First of all, wishing you all a very Merry Christmas, uh, but also what you see coming around the pike uh you know, before the new year, let us begin with John. Uh, well, Merry Christmas to you as well, and Thank to you. all the uh, listeners. Um, the uh, for me, when you say uh, coming around the pike, the end of the year, uh, quiet. I mean, we've fallen into that quiet period now, where parliaments have paused and everybody's back in the writings among their constituencies, <clears throat> and we'll see. And they will tell us uh, in the new year whether or not there's any uh, groundswell of disappointment with uh, the leaders of their parties, uh, whether there'll be any changes forthcoming. And I think what we'll find out is that it'll be much about nothing. People are more concerned about inflation and home ownership and the ability for their kids to ever have a place to live other than their basements. And I think what we'll find is that uh, next year will be particularly frustrating for is where we've had an abundance of elections recently. I don't believe there'll be any election next year or the year after that or the year after that. So it's going to be fascinating to hear all of the saber rattling that results in more of the same for the foreseeable future. Okay. Uh, Howard, 20 seconds, because we really are over time. Well, Merry Christmas to everyone. And I, I'm hoping. I hope for a better new year. However, I think we live in a very complicated world now where events on the other side of the globe uh, can affect uh, uh, all of us in in very particular ways. Uh, So I think we're going to struggle through uh, a a difficult world, a difficult environment, uh, and, and we are probably going to be stuck in that at least for the next year. And so I hope people uh, are patient. I hope people uh, continue to believe that we can make this a better world, but I think it's going to be a tough struggle. Gerard, last 20 seconds to you. So I would just uh, pick up and I guess, you know, I, I used to be able to ask people to think about the quiet noises. You know, the quietest noise is somebody going hungry. Uh, it's happening at Christmas and it's time to think about those things. There are kids that fell behind in their education that we need to get some resolve for in the new year because COVID had that impact. And there's also patients out there afraid to get into the emergency lineups. And so those quiet noises, I think people have time and patience for them over the holidays. And I would join folks with wishing people a Merry Christmas, but also some reflection in favor of those folks in society because they don't make a lot of noise. Okay, a good thought to end on. Merry Christmas to you all, and thank you so much, John McCutishan, Gerard Kennedy, and Howard Hampton. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, the single-use plastics ban takes effect today. I'm holding up a, a grocery checkout bag. We'll be seeing a lot less of those, among other things. We'll talk about it when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We will soon see some changes when we go to the grocery store or get takeout. As of today, phase one of the plastics ban takes effect and it covers Grocery checkout bags. I have one here and, uh, some takeout containers and cutlery, stir sticks and some plastic straws. Now, while they cannot be manufactured or imported, they can be sold until the end of next year to give retailers a chance to deplete their inventories. Now, it's estimated that this will result in the estimated elimination of 1.3 million tons of hard-to-recycle plastic waste over 10 years and more than 22,000 tons of plastic pollution. Okay, so let me give you the numbers if you have questions. I have questions about some of these items. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Michael Zabana, Vice President, Sustainability at the Retail Council of Canada, 
Tony Alanis, president and CEO of the Ontario Restaurant, Hotel and Motel Association, and Michael Skalgen, manager of policy and program planning uh, um, with Toronto Solid Waste Management Services. Yeah, that uh, Michael's uh, title was uh, too long to read all of it. Welcome. Thank you guys for joining us. Appreciate it. Great. Thank you. Okay, so great, great to be here, Libby. Thank you. So, first of all, I have a question. So, I'm I'm holding this up to the camera. So, the uh, bags that we get, you know, when we cash out with the little handles on them, I know that those are being phased out. My question is for the plain plastic bags, non-handled that you see on rollers that you put your produce into before it's weighed and whatever. And some of them, like this one, is uh, labeled in very large letters as biodegradable. So are these still going to be available? Is it only the biodegradable ones? Is is it all of them? What is the situation with those? So if you don't mind, I'll start. Please. I'm Michael with the Retail Council of Canada. So it's the single-use plastic checkout bags that will be uh, banned as of uh, banned for sale as of 2023, December 2023. So now we can't manufacture or import them into Canada anymore. Um, the the bags that you're referring to uh, for vegetables will still be available. Okay, and will there be a requirement that they are the biodegradable kind, or whatever kind is available uh, is the kind that that uh, you will find at your grocery store? Yeah, there, there's no specification around the type of plastic that the the vegetable bags need to be. So that's nothing to worry about. Uh, okay, and and those will eventually be phased out, and I will get to questions like what what will, what will we use then? Uh, Tony Alanis, uh, the same. We've all, I mean, I've already started to see more environmentally friendly takeout containers. I've got to say they seem to be a bit more prone to leaks and things like that, and and some of the bamboo cutlery that I've seen is kind of hard to use. So what's your take on this? Well, many in hospitality have moved forward and embraced the new regulatory practices and are, have either made changes or in the process of, of, of new implementation. Uh, most have adopted these practices to do the support for the environment and even consumer preferences. But the issue in our industry is with the smaller business that unlock the resources, and importantly, focusing on keeping the doors open. You know, if we all recall a year ago, even in the first quarter of 2022, remember Omicron, the industry was still devastated. But the challenges are continuing. Restaurants are paying back loans. They're dealing with a critical workforce issue and labor costs, high inflation, especially in food purchasing, which makes more than 35% of their total expenditures. These are their priorities. If the vast majority of the smaller independent restaurant business are not even aware and not focusing on this, that's the issue. They're not aware now. Are the newer, more environmentally friendly uh, containers, are they more expensive? They are more expensive. And it's back why the industry asked for phasing in and in a way that that the new supply chain can come up and reduce the cost. And and, and this is where government's help is needed. Uh, I do know the city of Toronto um, and, and, and our association and, and the BIAs have talked and they are preparing a campaign of awareness and also a, a, a list of suppliers with alternative products, hopefully that leverage and once the industry changes and, and, and the demand is there, the prices will start to be reduced. 
I'd like to bring in Michael Skaljan, and uh, I think I am not the only person that actually reuses these checkout grocery bags. And one of the things I use them for is when I, we put out the compost, you're allowed to put it in a plastic bag. And if you didn't, the, the uh, animal pest problem would be even worse than it is now. Uh, so when these are phased out, what what are people going to be using or what do you recommend? Yeah, it's a very important question, Libby. I think the main piece, we are seeing a big use of the plastic checkout bags for people's uh, compostable organics that they're putting in the green bin. Uh, but of course, we're going to be pushing people to use what's available on the market is purchased in the compostable uh, bags that would go in your kitchen catcher in your home or put in your green bin. So they're all alternatives. I think that we've been... Um, lucky to be able to give people an opportunity not to have to purchase uh, those bags and simply use what they're getting from the grocery stores. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, well, it, <laughs> these bags, we pay for them. I think it's around a nickel. And uh, the other question I want to ask the retail council yeah. that I know, uh, so in certain high-end grocery stores, uh, can someone turn that off, please? Um in in high end grocery stores, you get a very sturdy paper bag with your groceries that you've probably paid for another way. Uh, I've talked to retailers who say, "Hey, uh, we're going to charge fifty cents, which is a lot more, especially if you have a big grocery order." So, how is that going to work out? The move to actually very sturdy paper bags, but I think that they're quite expensive. So I see things as evolving from plastic to paper eventually, and even disincentivizing paper reuse. I think the ultimate uh, goal for especially our large members who have sustainability goals uh, is to drive more reuse uh, and shift to the reusable packaging. And a lot of our retailers, even before the ban was implemented, um, by the Canadian government, they already shifted to 100% reusable. I'll take Walmart, for example, that earlier this year in April, they, they completely shifted to reusable bags. Right. Um, now, th there are some rules for reusable bags. Uh, they have to be sturdy. They have to, uh, something has to be good about them. Uh, they have to withstand, what, a, a, a hundred washings, uh, so, uh, you know, I've seen reusable bags that uh, scare me because they get nasty and dirty, and I don't know how good people are about cleaning them. Uh, so uh, what's your view of that? Well, I think there just needs to be a certain, like the, the federal government in the, in the latest regulation has some examples of alternatives um, and, you know, they're directing people to reusable checkout check bags. As you mentioned, that, you know, they should be machine washable. They should be, you should be able to carry them for a certain distance um, and there should be a certain quality and thickness. Um, they have some recommendations around uh, fabric, knitted fabric, rated, etc. As, as an alternative as well. So it's not just uh, plastic reusable bags. Um, but I don't think there's any direction on hygiene, et cetera. Like these reusable bags are, are plastic. I think they can be scrubbed uh, after use if, they, if you've had leakage of meats or, or juices on them. So, but there is no standard on how many times you can use the bag. I think you just need to use your best. Your best. And I'll, I'll jump in on that piece. Yeah, so at the city of Toronto, uh, Michael, you are correct around, uh, we don't have any regulations uh, specifically on on uh, number of times of washing the items. However, we do have public health guidelines around the uh, use of reusables, and really it's there mostly to help support businesses to know, as you mentioned, Libby, uh, someone might bring in a bag and they want to put their contents in it, and the staff person at the uh, food beverage business might be like, oh, that bag's got some tears in it. So there's sort of two main categories here for public health regulation around this. Is Number one, the, the bag has to be, or the reusable item, needs to be in a good state of, of repair or like not torn. 
if the staff person sees holes in the bag, they could refuse and say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to be giving you this, put that item in that bag. And the other piece is cleanliness. So, um, it is, is very sort of like very much a guideline, um, uh, for, for businesses, uh, that gives them the ability to, to refuse an item that they may think is, is not in a good state of repair or is not clean. Uh, and so that, that's an important piece, uh, at least for the city of Toronto's, uh, guidelines. I think it's uh, worth noting that within the plastic industry, both in the U.S. and Canada, there's a significant debate what can be recycled and what isn't based on the type of plastic that's in it. Yeah, uh, we've got to take a break. Uh, We'll be back with more on this, trying to clarify all the new rules. And we'll also take some calls from our listeners when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about phase one of the single-use plastics ban that is, in effect, as of today. Uh, I'm going to start by taking a few calls from our listeners, and Rudy in Toronto would like some clarification. Hi, Rudy. Hello, uh, Libby. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm okay. I very much support the, the ban on plastics, and uh, what I was uh, concerned about is the uh, are the, the thin, clear uh, plastic bags and the vegetable and food aisles, those are still going to be allowed, are they? Uh, that's what I asked, and the answer was yes. Uh-huh. Well, you see, when I buy apples and oranges, I don't need to put them in one of those uh, bags separately. I can put them in my main bag, and uh, what... Uh, uh, I think that in the, certainly in the banana aisle, there should not be any of those clear bags because I see people putting a, a bunch of bananas that are still attached into a clear plastic bag. Why would they need to do that? Bananas uh, have their own covering. They don't need to be put in, a, in a, another bag. So, so therefore, that, that's sort of a waste. Okay. Uh, that people put them into, into the, put bananas into these bags. Uh, you know, you're in the grocery store, uh, whether the bags are right above the bananas or a few steps away, uh, people are going to use them as they see fit. Uh, but that is a good point. You do not need to put your bananas in a bag. And frankly, all those bags make the vegetables degrade faster. So. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that's one thing to think about. Uh, do we have, we have Barry in North York. Hi, Barry. Good afternoon. I have a question for regulators. Why can't the regulator say, okay, you have to go with biodegradable bags or paper? Both grocery stores that I deal with have that, and the paper bags are very strong because they're double and they have handles, and I reuse them, and I take them back every time I go back to that store. I, I use that that bag until it completely disintegrates. Well, um, the, you can use people, those bags. Yeah. Why? Why can't you? Why can't they just say instead of single plastic, you have to go with biodegradable bags or paper? Uh, well, those are both options at the moment, and I think they want to move to we we. Who was it that was just saying that the move is to reusable bags? I, I was saying that so. Uh, the move is to reusable bags, and it's all plastic bags, all types of plastic bags, including biodegradable, biodegradable bags and compostable bags that have been banned. Okay, yeah, and keep I using those. Uh, when I get when I get uh, those paper, uh, very sturdy paper bags, and they're often double bagged, I don't throw them out. Those are too good to throw out. They uh, they are definitely reusable, and uh, you know. But I do throw them out if they get nasty, uh, and I think people don't throw out the other ones when they get nasty, which is a problem. But uh, I'm glad to hear that the grocery clerks can refuse to load them, though I guess people can load their own. Uh, so. We have this coming into effect. What is the bottom line on it? Uh, Tony Ellenis, do you think that both customers and uh, the business owners are going to get used to this, uh, even if it is uh, an extra expense? 
Well, it will be an extra expense, as I said earlier. Hopefully, the demand will bring the prices down. Um, but the, uh, that, that, this is the first jurisdiction Canada is to try this. So there will be a lot of uh, uh, notes, and, and we will leave and learn. But uh, it will come to play, and, and things will go back to normal eventually. Uh, I'm just worrying about the cost because the industry is still hurting. A pandemic for the industry is not over and done with. But yes, and, and, and one area that has shown growth and continues to show growth in restaurant business is the takeout and delivery. And this is exactly hitting on, on that concept. Right. And in terms of uh, the state that things arrive in, it, with takeout and delivery, do you think that 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 is harmed in any way because of the move to these more paper-like containers? Well, I, I was uh, I was involved in a, in a broadcast with some uh, scientists, and they were debating that this would actually hurt the environment more. I am not a scientist <laughs> or an expert in this, but there's a debate going on in what is going to do more harm um, than, than, than support on this. Uh, but I'll leave that up to the experts. But there are uh, many debates going on right now. Many debates. I, I can build on that if, if you'd like, Libby. Go ahead. On, on the environmental impact. So, so more, more paper equals more trees being cut, more water usage, more energy usage leading to more greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and, you know, plastic is a challenge because it causes litter. It can be found in oceans. It pollutes our waterways. It gets into our water systems. So there's high risk. Um, plastic films, however, uh, helps preserve meats and vegetables. So, you know, like the cucumber film, for example, that reduces food waste because it extends the lifespan of food thereby reducing greenhouse gas emissions again. So when we speak to government, we say, okay, you know, we're open. We definitely, we want to reduce plastic waste, but let's also look at the environmental impact of some of these alternatives. And let's also look at the cost impact. So Tony mentioned uh, the, the significant cost increase uh, in terms of containers. We know, for example, for wooden cutlery, there are three times the cost of plastic cutlery. But all these things need to be weighed, the environmental impact as well as the financial economic impact. Yeah, and with some of it, I mean, I've talked about this before, another issue where retailers package up, for instance, they'll package up six or eight cucumbers. Well, if you only want two, they're, the rest of them are probably going to go bad. Why can't you just uh, sell them in quantities that people want and then you don't have to package them with plastic? That's an interesting point. you got to ask uh, the retailers that. <laughs> well, but, exactly. But, but um, I, I suppose, you know, obviously, you know, they, they'd like to sell things at scale, um, that uh, things degrade quickly. Um, so I th there's probably a, both a financial and, and, you know, environmental impact on, on that one. Okay, I'm looking at the clock. We are out of time. So I'm sure there would be lots more to talk about on this subject. Thank you so much, Michael Skalgin, Michael Zabana, and Tony Ellenis. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.